welcome to the Global Treasures Podcast. I'm Abigail Vaca. And I'm Keith Berthium. We're two travelers with a passion for exploring World Heritage Sites. What makes the concept of World Heritage Sites so unique is the idea that these places belong to all people, no matter where they physically live. We'll spend each episode exploring the history, travel tips, and so much more. There are 1,199 sites across the world, with more being added every year. We'll be releasing episodes in the order by year the sites were originally added to the list, starting with the first group in 1978. So with the introduction out of the way, let's get going. If you would like to support the show, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please feel free to leave us a review. In this episode, Keith and I will be introducing you to Yellowstone National Park. Yellowstone was originally established in 1872 and incorporated into the UNESCO World Heritage Site List in 1978. Yellowstone covers almost 3,500 square miles and sits in three different states, Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. Brought forth by the 42nd Congress of the United States and signed into law by President Ulysses S. Grant on March 1st in 1872, Yellowstone Park is widely held to be the first national park in the world. It is 2.2 million acres, larger than both the area of the states of Rhode Island or even Delaware. The park represents a fully intact ecosystem with lakes, forests, rivers, canyons, mountain ranges, grassland, and some of the most active hydrothermal sites on the planet. The park sits on top of the Yellowstone Plateau at an average elevation of 8,000 feet above sea level. The highest point of the park is atop Eagle Peak at a whopping 11,358 feet, and the lowest point is still almost a mile above sea level at 5,282 feet. The park is bounded on almost all sides by magnificent mountains that are part of the Rocky Mountain Range. Yellowstone National Park has one of the world's largest petrified forests, which are trees that were long ago buried by ash and soil, which transformed into minerals. Within the park, there are 290 waterfalls, three deep canyons that have been cut by rivers over the last 640,000 years, and one of the largest high-elevation lakes in North America. In 1898, the famous naturalist John Muir described the park as follows. However orderly your excursions are aimless, again and again amidst the calm and stillest scenery, you will be brought to a standstill, hushed and awe-stricken, before phenomena wholly new to you. Boiling springs and huge deep pools of the purest green and azure water, thousands of them, are plashing and heaving in these high cool mountains as if a fierce furnace fire were burning beneath each one of them. And a hundred geysers, White torrents of boiling water and steam, like inverted waterfalls, are ever and anon rushing up out of the hot, black underworld. The park also sits over the Yellowstone Caldera, which is the largest supervolcano on the continent. Even though this volcano is now considered dormant, it has erupted with unimaginable force several times over the past two million years. Lava flows and rocks from these eruptions cover most of the land of Yellowstone. The Continental Divide of North America runs diagonally through the park, which separates the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean water drainages. On one side of the park, water eventually makes its way hundreds of miles west to the Pacific Ocean, while just a little bit away, 
Water on the eastern side of the park will eventually end up hundreds of miles away in the Atlantic Ocean. The park has the headwaters of the Yellowstone River, which gave the park its name. This river has created the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone River. And speaking of water, Yellowstone Park has magnificent geothermal areas that boast half of the world's active geysers, including one of the most famous, Old Faithful. I think based on what you've heard over the last few minutes, covering the history of this park is going to be a massive undertaking. We had to be careful to choose the most significant parts or this episode would have turned into a mini-series. So I'll get started about 11,000 years ago. Native Americans have lived in the Yellowstone region for at least 11,000 years, hunting and fishing the region. Evidence of this has been uncovered by many archaeological missions. Even the construction of the post office in Gardner, Montana in the 1950s uncovered an obsidian point of Clovis origin that was dated to at least 11,000 years ago. Wait, back up. What does that mean? Obsidian what? Yeah, let me explain that a little bit. So this Clovis culture of Native Americans used obsidian found in the park to make cutting tools and weapons. These tools have been found as far away as the Mississippi Valley, suggesting that regular trade existed between local tribes and ones further east as early as 10,000 years ago. So now we're going to jump a bit of history here, all the way to the beginning of the 19th century, to a story many of you have probably heard, the famous Lewis and Clark Expedition. Lewis and Clark entered present-day Montana in 1805, and they encountered the Nez Perce, Crow, and Shoshone tribes, who described the Yellowstone area to the south, but Lewis and Clark chose not to investigate. In 1806, John Coulter, a member of the Lewis and Clark expedition, actually left the expedition to join a group of fur trappers. After splitting with these trappers in 1807, Coulter passed through what would later become the park during the winter of 1807 to 1808. In passing, he observed at least one geothermal area of the park. After surviving wounds he suffered in a battle with members of the Crow and Blackfoot tribes in 1809, Coulter described a place of fire and brimstone that most people dismissed as delirium. This mythical place was nicknamed Coulter's Hell. Over the next 40 years, Numerous reports from mountain men and trappers told of boiling mud, steaming rivers, and petrified trees, but most of these were believed to be myth by the people hearing these stories. What's a mountain man? Yeah, so a mountain man was an American explorer who lives in the wilderness and makes his living from hunting and trapping in the West. Got it. Not how I want to make my living. In an 1856 exploration, mountain man Jim Bridger reported seeing boiling springs sprouting water mountain glass, and yellow rock. Jim, however, was known to be a spinner of yarns, so very few people believed him. Aside from the mountain men during the early to mid-19th century, organized exploration didn't begin until the late 1860s, as the American Civil War hampered organized expeditions. The first detailed expedition to enter this area was the Cook-Folsom-Peterson Expedition of 1869, which had three privately funded explorers. The party followed the Yellowstone River all the way to the Yellowstone Lake. They kept a detailed journal, and as a result of these notes, a party of Montana residents organized the Washburn-Langford-Doen Expedition in 1870. This expedition was headed by Henry Washburn and included Nathaniel P. Langford, who would later become known as National Park Langford. They spent about six months exploring the region, collecting specimens, and naming interesting sites. 
Shortly after returning from this expedition, a Montana author and lawyer named Cornelius Hedges, who had been part of the team, proposed that this region should be set aside and protected as a national park. He wrote detailed articles for newspapers between 1870 and 1871, which helped support his cause. A lot of others were pushing the same message at this time as well. In 1871, Ferdinand V. Hayden was able to explore the region with governmental sponsorship. His team compiled a comprehensive report of the region that included photographs by William Henry Jackson and paintings by Thomas Moran, many of which have become very famous. This detailed information caused the U.S. Congress to withdraw this region from public land auction. On March 1, 1872, the U.S. Congress approved the Act of Dedication of the Park. In 1873, Congress authorized and funded a survey to find a wagon route to the park from the south, and eventually the railroads, and sometime after, automobile roads, would reach the park. In its early years, there was a lot of local opposition to the park. Some people were worried that the park would hamper the regional economy because of the strict rules. Local entrepreneurs spoke about reducing the size of the park so that hunting, mining, and logging could be developed. Numerous bills were entered into Congress by Montana representatives that sought to minimize the size of the park, but none of these bills were successful. After the park was formed, the administration originally fell under the U.S. Department of the Interior, and Nathaniel Langford was appointed the park's first superintendent in 1872. He served for five years, but was denied a salary, funding, or even staff. This meant that he obviously lacked the means to improve the land, protect the park, or have legal methods to enforce any of that protection. This meant that Yellowstone was open to poachers, vandals, and other aiming to misuse its resources. An 1872 report to the Secretary of the Interior outlined these problems and also correctly predicted that Yellowstone would become a major international attraction and so deserve full governmental support. In 1874, both Langford and the Secretary of the Interior, Delano, advocated for a federal agency to protect the park, but the U.S. Congress refused. So in 1875, Colonel William Ludlow, who had already explored the park previously under the command of the famous George Armstrong Custer, was assigned to lead another expedition to Montana in the newly established park. They found lawlessness and exploitation of the park, and these observations were included in a report. This report outlined the observations of poaching of buffalo, deer, elk, and antelope for hides. It was estimated that during the winter of 1874 to 1875, more than 3,000 animals were slain. In 1877, Langford was forced to step down. Philetus Norris volunteered for the position, and Congress finally implemented a salary for the position, as well as minimal funding to operate the park. Norris used these funds to expand access to the park by building crude roads and facilities. Over the next many years, control of the park transferred from the Department of the Interior to the United States Army. Ongoing poaching and destruction of natural resources continued until the Army arrived at Mammoth Hot Springs in 1886 and built Camp Sheridan. Over the next 22 years, the Army constructed permanent structures, and Camp Sheridan was renamed Fort Yellowstone. The Lacey Act of 1900 provided legal support for the officials to prosecute poachers. With the funding and manpower necessary, 
the Army was able to develop its own policies and regulations that allowed public access while also protecting the wildlife and resources. When the National Park Service was created in 1916, many of these same principles were adopted by the new agency. The Army turned over control of the park to the National Park Service on October 31, 1918. From the first railroad that was the gateway to the park in 1883, visitors increased steadily from just 300 in 1872 to a peak of 4.9 million in 2021. The dawn of the automobile made the park far more accessible. All right, now with the history out of the way, let's get to the fun stuff, the sciencey stuff. So we'll start with climate. The climate of the park is greatly influenced by the altitude. The summer months have a daytime temperature in the 70 to 80 degree range, while nights can be below freezing. Summer afternoons actually see frequent thunderstorms. Winters are much colder with highs between 30 and 60, with nights getting as low as negative degrees Fahrenheit. Precipitation can also wildly vary in the park, with some parts getting as little as 15 inches per year, while the other parts can get as much as 80. In fact, in June of 2022, the park closed entrances and evacuated visitors after a record amount of rainfall brought massive flooding, road and bridge failures. Yeah, if you're traveling to Yellowstone during the winter, check the road status map because most park roads are likely going to be closed to automobile traffic due to fast-changing weather conditions. It can be very icy. I mentioned earlier that Yellowstone is actually a dormant supervolcano. So this park sits over a hotspot that has moved northeast over time. As mentioned in a few of the previous episodes, a hot spot is a thinner area of crust that allows magma from deep in the earth to break through the crust more often. The park is actually a large caldera, which is a huge depression formed in the earth after a volcano erupts and then collapses, because all that lava that was below the ground is no longer there to support the sides and the elevation of the volcano, so the volcano collapses into it. Yellowstone is the largest volcano system in North America and is only matched in size by the Lake Toba Caldera on Sumatra. The reason it is called a supervolcano is because the caldera was formed by incredibly large and powerful explosions. The actual chamber that holds the lava below Yellowstone is thought to be one of the largest in the world. It is estimated to be 37 miles long, 18 miles wide, and 3 to 7 miles deep. The current caldera in its current form was created by a cataclysmic eruption that occurred roughly 640,000 years ago, which released incredible amounts of ash, rock, and pyroclastic materials. For comparison, the incredibly damaging Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980 was a thousand times smaller. This eruption wasn't even the largest. The largest eruption occurred roughly 2.1 million years ago, and was roughly two times more explosive than the one 640,000 years ago. These eruptions, and one additional eruption about 1.3 million years ago, created the Lava Creek Tuff, the Huckleberry Ridge Tuff, and the Island Park Caldera. Henry's Four Caldera and the Meza Falls Tuff were also created. When this supervolcano erupts, it blankets much of the Central North America area in vast amounts of ash that can spread hundreds of miles away. The amount of gas and ash released into the atmosphere caused significant impacts on world weather patterns and actually led to the extinction of several species, especially in North America. 
Since the last eruption, a series of roughly 80 smaller eruptions has nearly filled the Yellowstone caldera with lava. These layers of lava can be easily seen at the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone, where the river is carving into the ancient lava flows. The time between the last three eruptions has ranged between 600 and 800,000 years, so it would seem that the volcano is due to erupt again, but since there are such a small number of events to measure from, we can't really use these cycles to accurately predict the next eruption. Which reminds me, Abigail, why are volcanoes considered to be so mischievous? I don't know. Because they're erupt to no good. Ugh. Okay, so... Yellowstone is also famous for its geysers and hydrothermal systems, with the most famous geyser in the world being Old Faithful, located in the upper basin. However, there are a ton of other famous geysers as well. There's Castle Geyser, Lion Geyser, Beehive Geyser, Grand Geyser, which is the tallest predictable geyser, Giant Geyser, which is the geyser that ejects the most amount of water, and Riverside Geyser which are all in the same basin. The tallest geyser in the world is also located in Yellowstone, and it's called Steamboat Geyser. In 2011, a study was completed that identified at least 1,283 geysers that have erupted in Yellowstone. Of these, only about 465 of them are active in any given year. There are hydrothermal features that go beyond geysers as well. There are hot springs, mud pots, and fumaroles, which is an opening in the ground near a volcano in which hot, sulfurous gases emerge. Yellowstone boasts over 10,000 of these features. There was actually a brief time that people thought that Yellowstone was about to erupt. In 2003, geological changes in the Norris Geyser Basin forced the closure of some of the trails. New hydrothermal features were observed and many geysers showed more activity and increased water temperatures. Some were so hot they turned into pure steam and were no longer able to erupt normally. On March 10, 2004, a biologist discovered several dead bison that died from inhaled toxic geothermal gases that were trapped near the ground. Then, there was an increase in earthquake activity. In 2006, it was reported that Mallard Lake Dome and Sour Creek Dome had risen at a rate of 1.5 to 2.4 inches per year. Fortunately, that rate slowed down in 2007 and has been much slower since. The media paid a lot of attention to all this, thinking it was all indication of the next major eruption. But experts assured people that there was no increased risk of eruption in the near future. So Yellowstone does experience thousands of small earthquakes every year, but most of them are undetectable to humans. There have only been six earthquakes of magnitude, six or greater in historical times, with the biggest being 7.2 Hebgen Lake earthquake, which occurred just outside the park boundary in 1959. This triggered a huge landslide that caused a partial dam failure on Hebgen Lake. Downstream, the sediment from the slide caused a natural dam and created a new lake known as Earthquake Lake. 28 people lost their lives and property damage was extensive. The quake caused some geysers in the park to erupt. Large cracks formed that emitted steam, and some hot springs that were clear turned muddy. Commonly, there are swarms of earthquakes that can be between 250 and 3,000 earthquakes in a short amount of time. 
So Yellowstone National Park is the gem of the 31,250 square mile Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem which is a region that includes the Grand Teton National Park as well as adjacent national forests and expansive wilderness areas. The ecosystem is the largest remaining continuous stretch of mostly undeveloped pristine land in the contiguous United States and is considered to be the world's largest intact ecosystem in the northern temperate zone. Much of the original faunal and floral species to inhabit the region when the first explorers entered the region can still be found there. There are over 69,000 species of trees and other plants native to the park. Another 470 of those are considered to be exotic and are non-native. There are almost 60 species of mammals, 300 species of birds, and 18 species of fish as well. Even the hot waters hold weird life forms. Bacteria form mats of shapes, consisting of trillions of individual bacterium. These are some of the most primitive life forms on Earth. Flies and other arthropods live on the mats, even in the middle of the bitterly cold winters. Initially, it was thought that the bacteria gained sustenance only from the sulfur, but in 2005, researchers found that some of the species use molecular hydrogen. One of the visitors' favorites, the Yellowstone bison herd, is the largest public herd of bison in the United States. Bison once numbered between 30 and 60 million in North America, and Yellowstone remains one of their last strongholds. The number of bison in the park was at a low of 50 in 1902, to roughly 6,000 now. Starting in 1914, to protect elk populations, the U.S. Congress appropriated funds to be used for destroying wolves, prairie dogs, and some other animals. By 1926, Park Service hunters killed 136 wolves. Gradually, they were all but eliminated from the park. In the passing of the Endangered Species Act of 1973, the wolf was one of the first mammals listed. Once the wolves were gone, the coyote became the park's top predator. Since coyotes aren't big enough to take down large animals, the lack of the apex predator led to a massive rise in lame and sick large animals. By the 1990s, the government reversed its view of wolves. Wolves were then imported from Canada and reintroduced to the park. At the time of this recording, there are now 10 wolf packs with an average size of between 11 and 12 wolves each. The reintroduction was so successful that the wolf was removed from the endangered species list. Even the aspen forests, which were declining significantly since the early 20th century, has started to recover thanks to the wolves, which have actually changed the grazing habits of the local elk. Many other biological benefits have been realized with the reintroduction of the wolves back into the park. Bears are another important species in the park, and it's one of the few places in the United States where black bears coexist with grizzly bears. The grizzly bear was put on the list of endangered species in 1975, but was taken off in 2007, so it was on there for a pretty long time. It's been added and removed from the list several times since then. Some other less commonly seen animals include lynx, mountain lions, cougars, and wolverine. So forest fires are part of any natural ecosystem, and Yellowstone is no exception. They occur in the park every single year. Some species actually rely on these wildfires. Lodgepole pines, for example, are one such species, and they actually have cones that are only opened by the heat of a fire. These seeds are in a resin that the fire melts and allows the seeds to disperse. 
Also, the fire clears out the dead and downed wood, which gets rid of a lot of obstacles that would hamper the sapling's growth. Scientists estimate that in natural conditions, grasslands in Yellowstone burn at an average of every 20 to 25 years, while the forests in the park experience fire every 300 years or so. About 35 fires per year are ignited by lightning, with another 6 to 10 being ignited by people, usually by accident. Few of these fires burn more than 100 acres, with the vast majority of them burning only a little over an acre before petering out. In 1988, due to a drought, large forest fires burnt nearly one-third of the park. The cost of the 25,000 firefighters and U.S. military forces trying to suppress these fires cost the United States $120 million. By the time winter came and snow helped extinguish these fires, they had destroyed 67 structures, caused several million dollars of damage, and caused two firefighting personnel to lose their lives. Contrary to the media reports at the time, very few animals actually died from these fires. So all of this being said, I would like to cover some tips and information for you if you are interested in traveling to Yellowstone. In terms of the best airport to use to get there, it's sort of complicated because it depends which entrance you plan on using. Remember, this park sits in three different states and is gigantic. If you plan on entering via the north entrance, your best bet is to use the Bozeman Yellowstone International Airport in Montana. This is about an hour and a half from the entrance, so you'll want to rent a car. Although honestly, no matter which entrance you use, you'll really need a car to get around. If you plan on using the west or east entrances, you'll want to fly into the Yellowstone Airport. Yeah, I know the names are similar, but they're in different parts of Montana. They're not the same airport. This airport is very tiny, but much closer to the entrances. Again, you can rent a car and drive from there. These are also pretty close to Grand Teton National Park, and many people couple a visit to this park into their trip as well, since they're only about an hour apart. Finally, if you want to enter the park via the south entrance, your best bet is to utilize the Jackson Hole Airport. It's about an hour drive to the entrance from there. Apparently, there can be quite a bit of traffic congestion depending on which entrance you take. So there is a lot to do if you're outdoorsy. You can go skiing, snowshoeing, snowmobiling, fishing, and go hiking, of course. They also offer boat tours, motorboat and charter boat rentals, and guided fishing tours. During the winter, visitors can take guided tours via snow coaches, which are these large vehicles that... I had a hard time trying to provide a description of. I'll just say, Google a photo if you can. They're really cool. If you're interested in seeing the major geothermal areas we discussed before, as well as the lakes and waterfalls, the roads provide access to those sites. So I'm sure there are places to stay in the park with roughly 4 million visitors a year. Are there also museums or restaurants, things like that? Yes and yes. So there are nine lodges in the park and 12 campgrounds with a nightly fee. Although the campgrounds aren't open during the winter as of this recording, but they even have a gas station within the park, visitor center, warming huts, and gift shops. The website and app have hours for the stores and restaurants, so I recommend downloading the NPS app. 
It has interactive maps, predictions for when geysers are going to erupt. And the nice thing is you can download all of this offline to look at, which is great since a lot of the park doesn't have Wi-Fi or the areas that do, it's pretty spotty. So as mentioned before, the park has a tunnel of wildlife. I know that photographers love this park for that reason. Can photographers expect to get some good photos? Yeah, people regularly see critters like bears and bison. Wow, you just referred to a 2,000-pound animal as a critter. Yikes. If you want to get photos, take a nice look from behind the wheel of your car. Do not approach them to try to get a selfie with them, especially any animals with antlers. And please don't be selfish and park in the middle of the road. Be courteous of others who are trying to enjoy the park. I actually know someone who went and told me a professional photographer was scolded by park rangers for doing this to get better pictures of the animals. And don't feed them. This makes them more aggressive. Yes, even the squirrels. I thought it was interesting that bison injure the most people in Yellowstone compared to all other wildlife residing in the park. Oh, and a recommendation is to bring bear spray, which I found funny. They actually have a bear spray rental kiosk. I couldn't find a photo, but I'm picturing a red box, but instead of a movie, you get a can of bear spray. And just a couple other tips. Stay on the trails when hiking, and do not go into the hot springs. These are off-limits because people have died from third-degree burns. The water gets as hot as 200 degrees Fahrenheit. This is not the hot tub at your gym. So as the resident linguophile, I can imagine that most staff speak English at the park. But with the number of visitors, including how many international visitors there are, I'm actually eager to hear what you uncovered in your research about languages spoken. You said in our pre-recording work that you found something cool related to that. Yes, and a big kudos to the park rangers who are unsung heroes in this country as far as I'm concerned. The park actually obtained a grant at one point that enabled them to hire seasonal help that spoke Mandarin, Hebrew, French, Spanish, Polish, and other languages as well. So if you speak a language other than English, the park may be able to accommodate you. That's fantastic to hear. So we said earlier that almost 4 million people visit the park per year. I'm assuming that they mostly visit during the summer, correct? Yeah, mostly in June, July, and August. Another thing I uncovered is that some employees actually live in the park, and the National Park Service maintains housing for them. This includes biologists who study the animals, rangers, technicians, and more. There are also Native American tribal members who reside within the limits of the park as well. All right, we came to your favorite section, Abigail. Uh, So what'd you find out regarding conspiracies, urban legends, and the like? This park must have a ton of stories. Sure does. So Yellowstone is the fifth most dangerous national park in the United States in terms of the number of annual deaths and accidents. There have been murders, disappearances, and strange occurrences over the years. You ready to dive in with me? Of course, I know you love this stuff. I'm actually surprised you don't host a true crime podcast. All right, I've got my popcorn. Let's get into it. Okay, let's start with the murders that have occurred within the park. There are so many stories I could talk about, but I'm going to take you all the way back to 1889 with the first most notable murder. I'm going to tell you about a woman named Margaret Trishman. 
Margaret was known to suffer from serious mental health issues, having been in mental hospitals many times over the years. After her latest stay, she was released back to her family and within days ended up killing her oldest son. She chased her other children around the house with a weapon before being apprehended. And rather than go to another institution or jail, she took her own life in the Yellowstone River and her body was never found. And then there are all of the disappearances. There are at least 29 plus unsolved missing persons cases dating back to the 1950s within Yellowstone. Statistics are limited because national parks don't have a database for missing persons. And I think the most interesting missing persons case I came across was one that's more recent. I'm going to tell you about Stuart Isaac, who went missing in 2010. He was living in Maryland and wasn't known for being a nature enthusiast or as the type who regularly went hiking. However, seemingly on a whim, he decided to drive from Maryland to Yellowstone Park, which, if I did my math right, is about a 30-hour drive. He left a note for his family, and it seems like he spent about two weeks at Yellowstone. Do we know what he was doing in Yellowstone? No clue. But while he was there, he reached out to a friend by phone. And calling a friend, of course, is not strange in itself, except he called at 3.30 in the morning, and Isaac stayed on the phone with this person for two hours. The friend said nothing seemed off with his demeanor, though. And then another two days went by without anyone hearing from him. It was only realized he was missing when an officer discovered his Lexus parked about eight miles from Old Faithful Geyser in Wyoming, with the keys still inside the car. And what's strange is where he parked didn't have any hiking trails or really anything of interest in the area. So I parked there. Air and land searches were conducted, but they didn't uncover anything. And still, not a trace has been found to this day. There is an information line for the U.S. Park Police that you can call or text if you have information about this case or any other missing persons case within Yellowstone Park. Yeah, well, as I said in the last episode, don't hike alone. I think the next thing on my list is even creepier. Animals have been known to just spontaneously drop dead in the park. There's a spot called Death Gulch, which has become the graveyard for animal remains. There have been clusters of dead bison and bears that have been found in this area. But what makes this strange is that they all die at the same time. There were no markings as evidence that they were attacked by other animals either. Scientists investigated and discovered that large amounts of carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and hydrogen sulfide killed the animals, because this area is at the intersection of three major faults, with 30 geysers and hot springs. So as a result, this area has high temperatures and lots of toxic gases. Okay, then the piece de resistance, there are the hauntings. So there's this gorgeous log inn called Old Faithful Inn, which is a historic landmark and happens to be one of the biggest log-style structures in the entire world. Supposedly, the inn is haunted by a few different ghosts. And when a hotel is old enough and sees enough tragedy, stories are bound to start circulating. The first is of a bride who was murdered on her honeymoon. Someone who stayed in the room that the bride was killed in 
claims she woke up in the middle of the night to see a ghost hovering over the bed, dressed in late 1800s attire. Housekeeping staff also claim they've seen things move on their own. Others claim they've seen a ghost, which may be a gentleman named Charles Phillips. He was a ranger who worked at Old Faithful in the 1920s. He passed away after accidentally eating water hemlock, which is poisonous. Apparently, he confused it with wild parsnips and died a violent, traumatic death. So is it merely a trick of the light? Or are these ghosts still wandering the halls of the place they spent their last days on Earth? Ooh, that's creepy. So let's wrap up today by talking about the issues and challenges that are faced trying to preserve this park. What'd you find out? So you touched on it a bit before. Yellowstone National Park is one of North America's largest sanctuaries for rare plant and animal life. Yellowstone has specific legislation providing congressional direction regarding the primary purposes of the park. The park was placed on the list of World Heritage and Danger Sites from 1995 to 2003 due to the effects of tourism, infection of wildlife, and issues with invasive species. The grizzly bear is one of the world's most intensively studied and best understood bear populations due to being able to study them in their natural ecosystem within Yellowstone. This research has led to a greater understanding of the interdependence of ecosystem relationships. Another thing unique to Yellowstone is that all of the wildlife that was originally found pre-European contact can still be found, meaning they haven't gone extinct. However, going back to the grizzly bears, for example, they've been killed or had their habitats destroyed due to timber harvesting, road building, mining, and more. One positive note is that in the 1990s, the gray wolf was considered to be fully restored, which means that the steps they took to improve the quality of the habitat worked. Park management carefully monitors the number of visitors and offers educational programs to help people appreciate the wildlife and how their actions directly affect the animals and environment. Steps that you can take to support their work include making sure that you clean up the trash at your campsite before you leave. Respectfully utilizing the park will ensure that all of us, the public, can continue to access the park into the future. Thank you for listening to the Global Treasures Podcast. You can also check us out on YouTube and TikTok. See you next time for the beginning of Season 2.